George, it is such a pleasure. We haven't seen each other since the before times, I guess. We were at the Sydney Writers Festival. I was just thinking about that wonderful dinner. It seems like something from another era, doesn't it? It really, really does. I know. And I feel like I'm thrilled to continue the conversation now with a bit of a sort of sorbet between courses <laughs> of a few years. Likewise. Thanks so much for doing this. It's so of fun. Of course. You know, it was great to hear your stories on Selected Shorts, in particular to hear two stories in a row, a kind of like a cornucopia of George Saunders. And I was thinking about how they're both kind of very interested in the tensions between action and inaction. I mean, is that something you were aware of in either one or thinking of them together? Well, it's something I'm <laughs> yeah, always living with. You know, from the time I was a little kid, I had a kind of a, a weird combination of strong feelings about things and some kind of a neurotic lockup. Like I would have strong feelings and then be able to see both sides of a thing at the same time. And that often kind of froze me a little bit into more of an observer role, which I think you can sort of see in both of those stories. Yeah. And maybe that's what a lot of fiction is about, right? The tensions between those two. It can sure be fruitful. You know, I get a lot of mileage and a lot of fun out of the internal monologue, the kind of monkey mind narrative. And so I always feel like in a way that's when you're showing a character thinking, you're kind of winding up the machine a little bit. You're filling the character with potential energy. Yeah. And then it doesn't take much. You put anything in front of that person, it becomes plot, you know? So if I try to think of making something happen in a story in the abstract, it's really hard. But once you prime a person with feelings or even biases or unfulfilled longing or something, then almost anything that happens to them will, will become sort of a, an off-ramp for those pent-up feelings, I guess. I feel the same way, and I feel that way about novels. I'm always surprised when people tell me that they sort of plot out their novels without having interrogated the character first. Like, how do you know that person yeah. would do those things? So for you, how does that process work? Is there a period of writing without plot where you're just yeah. inhabiting a character's mind? Yeah. yeah. Maybe you have a similar thing with a story. It's a kind of freedom or play where you're not worrying about what is it? What am I trying to say? Yes. You have a little faith that that will turn into saying something. Do you have a similar thing? A hundred percent. And in fact, you know, if I feels like the longer I can abide in that state, the better the final thing is. As soon as I start going, oh, plot, you know, or oh, I can see a way out of this. I always have to kind of slow myself down because that's usually an off-ramp to a little bit of a disaster. You're sort of filling the well mm -hmm. with potential. And in that mode, when you're making all those small details and the small habits of thought and speech that you give to the character, the story seems to get I would say like a wider stance yeah. in a story, like an eight page story or something. You know, I can kind of maintain that improvisatory mindset for the whole time. But when you're working on a big, big novel, like how does that work with the balance between spontaneity and structure? And your, your novels are so structurally coherent. Well, I jokingly have something I call the 80 page plan. I kind of feel you can give yourself around 80 pages to sort of play and explore and not worry. And then once you have that, you can print it out, look at it and see not what you hoped to do in some unconscious way, but what you did do. For instance, with your story, The Falls. Now, that story was published in 1996. Do you remember the experience of actually writing it? I do. That one was sort of a rebellion. I've written my first book, Civil Warland, all at work. And they're all pretty much similar stories. They're in first person, present tense, kind of futuristic. There's a certain tone that I both learned to do and then got trapped in a little bit during that six or seven year period. So I was trying to find a way out and kind of just thinking, well, you know, I had some success with that, but I wonder if I have anything else. So I just started giving myself the assignment of writing these little 
kind of comic monologues, just every day a couple, you know. So Morse came out of one of those. He was sort of my imitation of my own mind, you know, that kind of worry, neurotic, am I doing everything wrong, uh, you know. And then on another day, I wrote one that turned out to be Cummings. But at that point, they were just two separate, really, experiments. I had no idea of putting them in the same story. But then at some point, I took some time off from writing, kind of get caught up at work, and then um, came back and saw those two fragments. And I thought, oh, God, I have no idea what to do. Let me just throw them in the same story, literally. So there was a couple little adjustments. You know, Cummings yeah. was suddenly walking along the same river that Morse was. But that was exactly what we're talking about because I had no idea where that could possibly go. It was just two monologues juxtaposed, really, at that point. It's just amazing that you somehow know without knowing when you're writing, or at least you have to be free enough to do that, right? I love that feeling when you don't know quite enough. There's a little feeling of kind of ornery excitement, like, oh, what if I put that with that? Huh, that's a tough one. That feeling seems trustworthy. The one where you go, oh, if I put this with that, that'll be great. Yeah. I don't like that one so much. In this new book, the title story has a sci-fi scenario, and I just thought, I want to put the battle of the little bighorn in there. And that was one of those juxtapositions where part of my mind went, that's going to be a, a two-year you know, time waste or what are you doing? But some little quiet voice like, oh, no, that's weird enough that it might be fun, you know, or, or it's hard enough that it might be fun. I think also some part of us knows something that we can't really name, like the reason that we put something in and then it reveals itself later to be something entirely different? Have you had that experience? Oh, 100%. And I think you're touching on something really dear to my heart, which is this idea that the moment when a person trusts, and I call it the subconscious, I'm not sure that's the right term psychologically, but that sort of undercurrent of wisdom or clarity that is there all the time, actually. And I, and I feel this in your work, and at least in my case, the conscious mind is often obstructing that. Yep. But when you get into the realm of writing and these kind of decisions that you're talking about, what I love is it confirms that that current exists. I mean, not only does it exist, but it feels more powerful than anything that I run into in daily life, you know? So then we could say, well, craft is actually just the method by which one writer taps into that. And artistic progress is just over the years becoming more and more confident that that undercurrent exists and that you can get access to it. I absolutely agree. I know what you're talking about and it's a kind of trust in it. I mean, I had a question for you. I'm going to just sort of cross it out, but I'm going to tell you what it was. You know, the way <laughs> parents say to children, what were you thinking? You know, <laughs> like, what were you thinking when you were writing? But you're telling me maybe the thought existed in a sort of gelatinous state. Yes, I always feel kind of embarrassed saying this, but the first impulse that I trust is some kind of fun. In other words, if I'm starting a sentence, do I have any opinions about how I might want it to sound? Do I have a preferred mode that I'm in here that will guide me as I try to make this bigger thing? And so the first impulse is kind of a, I would say, fun. It has to do with richness. It has to do with sort of a ornery certainty about what to do next, those kind of things. Yeah. So thought at that point, I'm kind of trying to keep it out of the room a little bit. Like if I think, oh, this is a great story about patriarchy. I'm like, get thee behind me. If I know what I'm doing, I might just do that thing, you know? So I think it's sort of wading into a mystery is the only word I can really think of. But as we're saying, there is a trust that that mystery isn't random. There's a great deal of meaning there in that undercurrent. And so the trust is saying, I'm not making these decisions by the normal route actually. No. I'm not making them the way I would fill up my grocery cart, but I'm trusting this other thing that, you know, that we've gotten in touch with over these many years of writing. Absolutely. And you earn that trust over time. And the reader comes to it a little more open 
if they know one's work. They're a little less scared of what is this guy going for? I've heard that again and again, like your stories are really weird at the beginning, but by the end, I get by the end. I, yeah. Yeah. But I also think you had lately, me at goodbye. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but also I was thinking some about how part of my job, if you, at least for my particular weird ability, is to genuinely not know what's happening during it. And I think that sometimes is a lure for the reader. In other words, I think it, the, the number one buzzkill is if the reader goes, okay, this story is going there. Oh, it did. That will happen if I'm clinging to certainty, you know, if I'm clinging to the side of the pool, wanting to know the meaning before I start, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas if I get lost in my own story and it confuses me, then I think that lures the reader in a bit, kind of like Houdini. You know, if Houdini said, now I'm going to put on a sports coat and sit in this kiddie pool and then I'm going to escape, everybody would go, well, that's not so hard. You stand up, you know. Right. But, but if he's really putting himself into a tough bind and the viewer feels that, then there's a sense of complicity and, you know, involvement. Uh, you don't want a polemic. You don't want this to be a straight road. And you said fun earlier, and I'm absolutely with you on fun, but I want to take a little side trip here because I want to talk about a love letter because that's a different kind of story. And that story is from 2020. So it's from a very different place in the world. And it's from you as an older writer. Can you mm -hmm. talk about what were you thinking or not for that? Yeah, that was a real exception to a rule that I've been pronouncing for years, which is don't write politics. Right. At this point, I turned 64 this week. I'm like, well, whatever was hidden behind those rules, you better go get that because one, you don't have much time left. And two, your talent is not infinite. So in this case, I just thought, man, this political stuff is driving me nuts. I can't believe I'm living through this period. This is before the last election. And I just thought, all right, I'm going to type some of that up because it bothers me. And I guess at some level, I was thinking, if you type something that's true for you, one, there's going to be some power in it, just rhetorically. If you say what's really on your mind, it's going to be powerful. Two, I can always attribute it to somebody. And three, another version of two, if I say it sincerely, a story can form around it. And that was something I learned from Chekhov. Every so often, you'll find some speeches or diary entries that are almost verbatim in his stories, but they're attributed to somebody else. So I just thought, I'm going to write exactly what I feel about this failing of our democracy and then trust that the story form will somehow find a way to take it in. So it's a grandfather trying to give some good advice to his grandson. But the way I understood it was we feel that he's maybe a little cautious. The grandfather has given up on the fight and is kind of counseling his grandson to do the same. And what I noticed about the piece that got me sort of excited was I wasn't sure if I agreed with him or not, even though it was my words. I felt like, well, yeah, he's got a point, And also he's totally a coward. And I never could quite figure out which was which. Well, I think the reader, at least this reader, felt the same way. Like you start to wonder about that. Like just as you start to think, yeah, I would write that letter. You think, wait a minute, isn't that the problem? Isn't that part of the problem? That's that Chekhovian idea that a story doesn't have to solve a problem. It just has to formulate it correctly. Right. But that's an interesting thing because after that story came out, I got a lot of letters saying, do you agree with that? I don't know. I agree with the conundrum, you know. Also, the fact of writing an epistolary story interested me because I have a friend who's a writer and he said that when you put a letter into fiction, it sort of pops. It makes the reader read in a different way. And I was thinking about that with regard to your story because there's something illicit about reading a letter not addressed to you. You know, I mean, it's not addressed to you, it's addressed to his grandson and the date is even blocked in a kind of Kafka touch. but. 
I just wondered if you sort of felt that way about it. It makes the story more of a hot object. You're overhearing something. I totally agree. And I think that was an intuitive feeling. I kind of remember the moment when I said, oh, dear, whatever his name is, you're getting a chance to see someone's unmediated truth. You know, he's talking to his grandson. So I think he's pretty sincere. And I think there's an urgency in it. He really loves this kid and he feels that the kid is losing respect for him, I think. So there's an urgency in what he's saying. And then suddenly we're over his shoulder reading, which I think is a really, as you say, it's a kind of a provocative device. But it also, as I was imagining being him, it changed the rhetoric a little bit because now I'm talking to a beloved younger person and I kind of know what he thinks of me and I'm trying to get ahead of him and I'm trying to persuade him. So it felt like there was a little bit of uh, an increase in the honesty from my point of view too. Although there was an interesting thing when I first wrote it, I was feeling a little funny about the earnestness of it and also about the politics. So I did something where in the early drafts, I had a bunch of errors or not errors exactly, but kind of like attempts to communicate a casualness. So there were like ampersands and there were little kind of misprisions of syntax and stuff like that to make it a little more comical. And when I sent it to the New Yorker, Deborah Treisman said, why don't you try a draft where you just make it as rhetorically correct and intelligent as you can. Don't undercut it by making it a comic object. So I just, I literally just went through and took all that stuff out there. And you talk about popping, like suddenly there was a level of sincerity in it that wasn't there before that seemed to be working in the greater cause. And this is sort of a lifelong thing. I got into the club of writers by being comic. And so I'm a little bit leery whenever I'm earnest. So in that case, I was trying to sort of syntactically or typographically undercut the earnestness of the piece. Yeah. And when it came back in, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I meant to say. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the experience with having Stephen Colbert read your work and how that felt. Were you surprised by lines that he emphasized or the audience response or anything in his hands? Yes, it was a kind of a magical thing. I was sitting on stage with Marlon James and Stephen was reading off to the left. And, uh, you know, it's always funny when you're someone else is reading your work and you're sitting there. And about a third of the way through, I thought, I mean, this sounds weird to say, but I thought, oh my God, this story is good. You know, which I don't normally think about my own work. The way he was inhabiting it, line by line, as if he was that person. He was discovering nuances in every line that were communicating themselves to me in a totally fresh way. So the only thing I could think of is he was sort of doing in real time what I had done in writing it, which was to discover the person on the other side of it. So as I said, when I started this, I wasn't sure it could be a story. Mm -hmm. My sort of nominal definition of a story is something changes meaningfully, maybe forever in the course of it, even if it's a tiny. So when I wrote the story, I thought that in the last paragraph or so, there's a slight crack in his facade, you know, where throughout the thing he's been saying somewhat sensibly, be careful, don't risk everything, enjoy life just as it is, even under this autocratic regime. But then I think in that very last paragraph, the grandfather starts to really doubt himself. And in fact, he offers the kid money, which is totally contradictory to the rest of the piece. And Stephen got that. He communicated that with his reading in those last few seconds. And that was lovely for me because I had my doubts about that story as a story. And when he found that nuance and communicated it and you could feel the room feeling it, it was really powerful. And then he walked off and there was a split second of that kind of stunned silence that you covet as a performer. And then the room just kind of erupted. It's so thrilling to have your work read and understood in that new way. Hearing these stories on the show, 
is so exciting for me because I don't know about you, but when I read, I often go into, and then Marion walked into the, like, why? Where does that come from? Marion, Marion. How do I like, become who? British all of a sudden? <laughs> I know. I become British. I become pretentious. But I also go up into a kind of a little phlegmy, thicker, higher, like stage <laughs> voice. And they don't. Yeah. I think it's harder for writers, or at least harder for me, maybe not for you. No, uh, You're too. a very good yeah. reader. You oh, know. thanks. No, but I, I totally hear what you're saying. It's just mystifying to me. What I saw in Stephen's performance was a version, I think, of what we talked about earlier, which is somehow the artist gets in touch with what I was calling the undercurrent or the subconscious or somehow becomes one with the work. And then all these magical things happen through that trust. So it's always interesting to me to see it happening in a different medium. I can understand that medium in what we do, where we sit there for eight years, you know, rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. But to see it happening on the spot is really something. Like when you see musicians suddenly get an inspiration in the middle of a song, you know, it's really something. It's thrilling because we know we could never do it. Glenn Close starred in the movie of my book, The Wife, and I was talking to her about character. And her idea is that you don't say a line that you don't really understand. Wow. And I feel like, you know, when you're reading something, if there's a line you don't really understand, growing up in school, we just go breeze past it. We say a word wrong and we keep going. Right. And actors who really are inhabiting characters, maybe they don't, maybe they just stop there and say, yeah. you know, again, back to what I said earlier, what were you thinking? I was reading Tolstoy's last novel, Resurrection, which is a crazy, I think somewhat underestimated book and also kind of an obnoxious book, but kind of wonderful. But in there, he's got this part where he says, sounding very much like Tolstoy, something like, if a person isn't feeling love, he should take no action. And then he reiterates it. If you feel anything but love, stay silent. If what you do is not full of love, do nothing. And I think there's something about that with this idea of actors and awareness, you know, to be able to come to every line and feel love or alertness or presence in every line of a story is really amazing, especially when you didn't write it. I mean, I don't get that. It's incredible. It's a thrilling thing to see because I don't really understand it. They're having fun. I mean, back to that idea. When you said fun, I lit up because I'm all about fun and pleasure in fiction. I yes. want to be marinating in some sensibility that is not my own and that I love being in. And I think that's why people love your work because you can feel that. I mean, fun is the kind of one way to say it, but it's also love because I think when we're having fun, that indicates the desire that our readers have fun. Right. Which truly is a way of saying we're going to try to engage their whole person. I like to think that we're not such freaks, that our idea of fun isn't anyone else's. You know, that there are a few <laughs> other people who would find a line that we get excited about and do the Snoopy dance over, right. you know, would feel that way about it too. And then there's that connection to them, even though it's made up. Oh, yeah. The deep version of that too is that you're saying to somebody, I see you. I really do see you. And our experiences are very, very similar. And the way we know that is I just described a certain kind of summer day and you just had a pleasurable remembrance of a day like that. We're the same. It's common to say in times like these, but I do think in times like these to have somebody reach across the distance and say, yeah, no, for sure. It's hard down here, you know, and it's also beautiful down here. It means everything. Yeah. I think we need to stop, but I wanted to just quickly say, in times like these, is your writing changing? Is your reading changing? I'm uh, trying to start something new and I'm a little struggling with, I'm trying to refrain from easy solutions or easy uplift mm -hmm. because I don't, I'm not feeling it right now. I'm not feeling triumphant 
in my relation to the world exactly. So I'm trying to figure out ways to make the writing fun, but honest. Can't quite articulate it, but it has something to do with these lessons we've learned these last six or seven years about certain things that I thought were fairly fixed, not being that way. And then, okay, how do I then remain hopeful in the face of that new understanding, I guess, something like that. But again, it'll work its way out. You know, I, I may just have a whole book full of fart jokes. I would read it and many, many others would do. <laughs> George, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a real joy. It's always such a pleasure, Mike. Thank you.